0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. We are going to be in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is where we're going to be today. I was thinking here recently And this is a thought that has occurred in my mind uh, repeatedly throughout the years. It it seems to me, and this is sort of a strange thing, so follow me on this. I'm not making a, a, a judgment or a worth call in this. But it seems that men, dom- predominantly, don't like to sing. Uh, don't, don't, and particularly don't want to sing in public. And, and I'm not real sure why that is. I'm one of the guys that will sing all the time. Anyway, you can ask the staff. I walk through the hallway singing. I, I sing all the time, everywhere. Um, but generally speaking, uh, men don't like to sing in public, and, which is kind of. Kind of different because if you think about it, usually in churches uh, the worship minister is a guy. Doesn't have to be, um, but but typically it is, and so there's that kind of precedent. And then of course the king of country music, Garth Brooks, is um, is is a man. I know some of you are mistaken about George, but it's actually Garth. And so, I mean, so he's a guy, and, and they sing. And so there's just this kind of strange thing that in public men don't typically like to sing. And, and I guess there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing at all wrong with that. But one of the reasons why this sort of occurred to me is there are a couple of memories I have in which I saw my dad sing. And it just, it stands out in my mind. And, and it was just kind of different. He didn't sing a whole lot. And, and I would stand by him in church. His mouth was moving, but there wasn't any sound coming out of that. And I, I could tell that. And that was okay. But then there were these times where I can remember driving around in this truck, He's in the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat. And I kind of look over at him and he's singing. He's singing along and I can hear it, you know, and he always, he always had a mustache. And so there's just something about my dad singing these songs that kind of stood out to me. And I wondered, even then I wondered, and I guess I still kind of do, what was it about that song or that moment? I mean, was it just he was having a great day? Was it something about the lyrics? Was it something about um, just in that moment? Or, or maybe the artist that sings that song? What was it about that song that made my dad sing? What was the, what was the, uh, the meaning, the underlying thoughts and expressions and emotions that went into my dad who's generally, like I said, a happy, uh, a guy, a, 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 um, a just a, a kind of um, joyful person, but not terribly expressive, to express emotion through singing. In Isaiah 25, we are looking at um, a, a text that is a song. Isaiah is that typical prophet. We said this a a couple of weeks ago, back when we started this series. Isaiah is one of those typical prophets who, I mean, he's got the beard. He's got the the rough clothes. He marches into the king's palace and says, thus saith the Lord. He is definitely not the kind of guy that you think at any moment now, he's going to start singing. He's going to break out and do a jig. He's going to sing. It's just not the way that we, uh, you know, picture Isaiah. And so for that fact alone, For that fact alone, I wonder, what was it? Or I know what it was because he's saying it, but but what good would it do us, maybe, to see, to feel, to know what Isaiah felt, saw, and know? That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at this song that Isaiah sang and we are going to kind of explore some of the themes that he explored there. Before I break that apart, I would I would regret not saying welcome to those of you who are watching online I was I was taking a look at that uh, on our Facebook a minute ago. I noticed the Smiths there on there, uh, Rolly's on there. I saw even Miss Janet is on there, and we have somebody from Nebraska uh, tuning in to our worship service this morning and so absolutely glad to have some corn huskers in the in the audience today, and so we 're excited that everybody is joining in online and here in the room, but if you would, please, before we look at the text, let's pray together, and then we'll kind of explore that theme of Isaiah's song. God, thank you. Thank you for what you are doing in and through this church. God be with my mind and my mouth as I communicate what it is that you have laid on my heart today. and God, may we leave here today, confronted by the greatness of who you are. May we sing songs. may we not just sing, but maybe we act in a way that praises you, exalts you, lifts you up, because we are so impressed. We are so amazed by your wonders and your plans from a long time ago. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Contextually, what's going on here is Isaiah, over the last few chapters, has outlined uh, a future kingdom. Isaiah has seen into the future, and he has seen God's Kingdom, fully established here on the earth, uh, reigning justice is supreme and grace and mercy reign. And he sees that he's confronted by that. And because of that, and because of some of the themes that happen in that future kingdom, he is uh, moved to sing. And uh, we typically talk about Isaiah or over this last series. We've been sure to point out the reality that prophets did tell the future, foretelling, but they also told the present. They told the truth in the current setting. And a lot of what Isaiah says is that current truth applied. This, though, is some future truth um, illustrated or praises that come from that future truth. What he does is a song, and I noticed five reasons, five reasons for his song. And that's what I want to get to. In verse 1, 25 verse 1, it says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Before we look at the five reasons, let's just stop for just a second and think about the idea of praise or the idea of worship. We've probably said that word a couple of times already this morning. Um, one of those words, or some sort of synonym that goes with the word, we've talked about praise and worship and these sort of things. A lot of us would even describe the first portion of a worship service as the praise and worship portion of that. But what do we mean when we talk about praise? What do, what do we mean when we say worship? Well, the definition or the etymology of the word worship means to worship, worth to ascribe worth, to recognize worth. Humans are created by God to give worship. It is something that we do. We can recognize cognitively this object reality that there is things out there that have value, they have worth, and we will leverage our lives and our talents and our gifts and even our words and our songs and our art and our poetry to give worth to something else. And it's, and it's an, a non-tangible exchange, but we are giving worth to something else. And we do it all the time. Some of you have relationships where you will, you will have more value in this relationship than you do in this relationship and still yet more value in this relationship than you do in that relationship. You have possessions that you ascribe value to because of sentimentality or tradition or just the memories that come with them. You are ascribing worth, you are ascribing praise to those things. And there's nothing really wrong with that. It's just that Scripture calls us to attribute to God the ultimate worth. To see Him in the place that He truly is, high and lifted up. That ultimately, we're going to look at God as the most worthy. We're going to look at Him as the biggest definition of our praise. Over the last couple of weeks, you've probably noticed that the weather's gotten really nice, right? And, and I've been really motivated to go outside. I, I mean, I just want to go outside I don't care what it—I have a sliding glass door on my office. I want to open that all the time. I want to go outside. If I get a chance, we had a meeting um, here at the church outside, which worked pretty good until uh, the lawn crew started up all of their machines, and then we couldn't hear each other. But we just sat there and kind of watched them. And so there was just this value of going outside. I'm looking for reasons to go outside. Well, there's only so much lawn work you can do, right? And so— Uh, Truly in an effort to just be outside. I decided to wash our vehicles And so i'm washing jackie's truck i'm washing my truck this kind of thing And I may have washed my car a couple of times Um this last because I want to be outside Well this week when i'm washing my truck for maybe the third time i'm thinking to myself I wonder if my neighbors think my truck is an idol (laughs) Like I mean if you're washing your vehicle for the third time by hand you may be worshiping your vehicle, and that's ridiculous. Nobody would think that I worship my truck at all. I I like it, but I don't worship it. And I've had vehicles before where it's like, eh, it's okay. And I don't wash it as much. I don't wax it by hand. I don't spray the smell good in there as often as I do with my current truck. Why? Because I ascribe more worth and more value to the current truck than I did to previous vehicles. That's just an illustration of the idea of what worth giving, worth ship is. That we will give worth and value to all sorts of things. The call is, do you give God the ultimate, the greatest, the biggest, the weightiest of worship? I asked earlier this week on Facebook, I said, there are all sorts of reasons that you would worship or praise God. What are your top three? we had like 32 some odd responses. People giving their reasons. And they, ca- and they broke down into a couple of categories there. Several people talked about tangible things. Several people in their comments said something along the lines of, they are thankful or praise God for a vehicle, for a car, for food, for their house. And those are great things to worship God for. Those are, those are blessings from God. Other people wrote about relationships like friends, or family, children, and spouses. And I mean, I, I'm with you on that. That those caused me to so praise God. Other people, and I appreciate this, other people wrote about who God is and what he does. They mentioned things like God's grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. And to be honest with you, if I was to make a list, if you were to make a list right now, probably our list would be those things, right? I mean, we would list some of all of those things. In Isaiah's song, he lists out what I see as five things, five causes. He says, for this reason, he praises, and of those five things, some of them, I don't know that we would have ever written down, particularly the first one. I don't think that we would have ever written that down. And I think it's helpful for us to see Isaiah's list and then maybe expand the way that we view worship. Let's look at that first one. It's found in verse two, four. So listen, I will exalt you, I will praise you for, this is the reasoning, for you have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. The first motivating factor to Isaiah to break out in song is God's judgment. God's judgment. That's not, that's not, nobody wrote that. On Facebook. I'm just praising God today for his judgment on the wicked. Nobody nobody starts there, but Isaiah did. We don't have any worship songs that really kind of lift high the judgments of God and his chaos that he brings on other people. But that's where he starts. The idea there is directed, though. It says barbarians in the Christian Standard Bible. In your Bible, it might use the word of strangers or foreigners. I prefer barbarians because... Uh, even though both are fine English translations, it doesn't really capture the heart behind it. These people are not being judged because they're not Jew, like a stranger or foreign. They are being judged because they are anti-God. In fact, in verse 5, it says that these barbarians are Violence, that they defy the image of God in other people and they take advantage of other people. They oppress other people. They hurt other people. Isaiah lifts up praises towards God because he is saying that God judges, destroys the strongholds of the mean, of the oppressor, of the evil. It made me wonder what would be the strongholds of people who are defiant toward God and who mean uh, evil toward others. Not just cities, but what are those strongholds, those places where they run to? I think in our culture, there's some easy ones to identify. These are ones that are true throughout all cultures and all time. One of them would be racism. The idea of looking at another group of people as the enemy because of the, the color of the skin that they were born, because of different uh, characteristics that they have. That's an evil stronghold that people run into and defend themselves and attack other people. It, its cousin, superiority, would be another stronghold that people run into they they go into that stronghold and and maybe it's not based on race but it could be based on um education level or or intellect or finances they 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 hover up in this place and attack other people from this stronghold if you're not with us then you're against us and we're going to attack you we have political parties that will make strongholds that end up being mean or taking advantage of our or our oppressing others. There's any number of these things that we could list out. Like I said, academia, there's nothing wrong with getting education, but academia could be one of those strongholds where a certain philosophy or a certain worldview sort of gathers people together and from that stronghold this um, self-congratulating uh, this, this um, uh, confirmation bias stronghold, people will attack other people will hurt other people, will use those positions to oppress other people. And gloriously, the Bible says that God tears down those strongholds, that he lays those cities in ruin, that the rocks are scattered, that this is God's victory. And for that, Isaiah praised him. God is praised because those strongholds of the mean are ruined Conversely, and I do mean conversely, God not only judges the evil, but he has compassion for the poor. God's judgment, God's compassion. Look in verse 4 and 5. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person. Same word. He destroys the stronghold of the evil, but he himself is a stronghold for the poor. These people who have nothing turn to God as the only thing that they do have. That while others may take strongholds or may take solace and safety in, in, in intellect or in finances or in heritage, the poor before God look at God and say, I have nothing to find strength, to find security, to find meaning, to find purpose, to find community, but you, that the poor run toward God the poor need God. What is meant by the poor? Well, certainly it means at some degree those who don't have resources. But at another degree, and in a much greater spiritual impact, it means something else. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. God is a stronghold for the poor in spirit. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors and pastors of all time, explained that phrase, poor in spirit, this way. He says, The way to deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely valleys of soul poverty and abnegation of all things. The blessed ones who possess the kingdom are they who have repudiated every external thing and have rooted from their hearts all sense of possession. These are the poor in spirit. There are people who look toward God and say, I bring nothing to the table. There's nothing in my heart. There's nothing in my mind. There's nothing in my wallet, nothing in my uh, storage units. There's nothing in my home or my garage that brings any sort of real safety or security. I only look to God for these things. That's the poor in spirit are theirs as the kingdom of God. And so Isaiah praises him for that. Praise God because he judges the wicked. Praise God because he is safety for the insecure. He has protection for the poor. In verse 6 we see another one. In verse 6 we see a slightly different. He says, On this mountain the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat. A feast with aged wine. Prime cuts of choice meat. Fine vintage wine. God not only judges the wicked, he protects the poor, but he also provides One of the reasons that isaiah is worshiping god is because of his provision this is a future sort of declaration he's looking into the future at a day in which a fine feast is laid out for the people of god and even though it's a future thing it's not inconsistent with who god always has been and always will be. You know, the Bible starts with this picture of God taking Adam and Eve, man and woman, husband and wife, and placing them in the garden. And one of the things God says to them is, you may eat of any of these trees, except for that one. Starts with God providing. The story ends, the whole big great narrative, the big meta-narrative, it ends with this big feast when God gathers all, of his children together, and they have this big feast. It's, it's almost like it was written by a Baptist. It starts and it ends with a meal. That's how this whole thing is. At least the Southerner um, had some influence in this. God starts and ends with this provision. And here in Isaiah, Isaiah is worshiping God because he provides. It's the same thought in James when it says that all good gifts come from the Father of life lights. lights. These are not just what they need, it is ultimately the best of what can be given. God provides for us not only what we need, but the very best of the things that can be given. For instance, God knows that humans are created with a need for community. It is not good that people should be alone. They need community, and so God provided for us a church a place to go to for security, a place to go to for acceptance, a place to go to for encouragement, a place to go to for accountability and uh, helping you be right-wised and pushed on the right direction. We need that, and God provided that. In a community, God knows that we're going to need some help figuring this out. That sometimes things happen that are far beyond our understanding or our our intellect. And so, God provides what He calls the comforter, the paraclete, the one who walks alongside, the, the guide in the Holy Spirit. God has provided for us, even though we are so often unthankful for this or we forget to be grateful for this, God has provided for us the Bible, that He wrote His Word through various ways and in various means throughout all of history. He wrote it and he gave it to us, not just audibly so we would have to remember it, but but written down and, and sealed down as a standard, as a value that we could hold it, that we could read it, that we could run to it, that we could know it, that we could give it in all of its entirety, that we could give it to other people. Sometimes I am blown away by the reality of the Bible, and then also by my inability to be truly grateful for what the Bible is as the gift of God. God provides. Here recently, a friend of mine gifted us a stake, a stake. Have you ever been given a stake? Think about it. This, this could change the way that we give gifts. I mean, who wants diamonds If you can get a steak, and so a friend of mine, he gave us a steak, and it was a good steak too. It was, the marbling was perfect. It was perfectly cut. It it was a great steak. And I'm the kind of guy, though, I can enjoy a steak at Chili's. I can enjoy a steak at Three Forks in Dallas. I can enjoy a steak at the nicest steakhouse. I can enjoy a steak at a steakhouse. I can enjoy any kind of steak. That's just the way it is. But even though I'm that kind of guy, give me some A1 and a knife, and I'm good. Even though I'm that kind of guy, I still recognize, man, if it's grass-fed and cut from special cows, it tastes better than this steak over here, right? I recognize steak is always good, but this steak is gooder. I, I know that. I see that. I recognize that. In a lot of ways, one of the things that we um, really mess up as humans is that we are so satisfied with this when God is freely giving you this if you just want friends and a community you can find that in a biker gang all right if that's just you know you're just going to be satisfied with something like that and i'm not necessarily saying biker gangs are bad some of them are probably good i guess i don't know never been in one that might shock you but i've not been and so you can find that in a biker gang but if you want god's community if you want what god gives you that's a church That's what he did, and it's not like, eh, it's church. It's like this is a good and great gift from God our Father. Isaiah praises God. Isaiah is amazed because God provides. He judges the wicked, he protects the poor, and he provides for his people. One of those provisions is specified in the next part. You see, because of our rebellion, because of our sin against God, we all experience at least one we all experience the same consequence of our sin. We all have, if you've lived any amount of time, who hasn't felt the sting of separation? Who hasn't grieved the loss of somebody that they love? That's somebody that you cared for, that's somebody that you have fond memories with, somebody that you hold precious or you were to hold precious if it's something in the idea of a miscarriage or somebody that you um, held precious in the idea of a grandmother or a spouse or a child. Feel that sting, that pain of death. It's a reality that all of us experience from smaller, maybe the loss of a pet to greater, the loss of a child. We feel that because we live in a sinful world. We feel that because that's a consequence of sin. With that in mind, that idea of death and separation, Isaiah pins the words, he sings the song, on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations, that God will kill death, that God will step into the gap, called separation. That ultimately one of the biggest reasons we praise God is because God kills death. A burial shroud is that you've seen it in maybe movies or something. That white blanket that they pull over the face of the body that is is now gone. The face of the person is now gone. And maybe you're not real familiar with the shroud, but you've probably seen a movie like a detective movie or or, or maybe a detective TV show where where there's the cadaver, there's the person that has gone, the the, the victim, you know, and they zip them up in that bag, you know, in that body bag. There, they're zipping them up, and always that scene is really this powerful moment. Even if they just it just That's all you see is the zipping up there, or or that, that scene moves through it really fast. It's this pivot between there is now a victim, there is now death. This thing is now upset. All of these people, not this thing, the person, this thing called death, and it completely covers the body. It completely covers the body, and that. Isaiah says these words in a poetic, in a beautiful way. God has swallowed up that which swallows up all of us. That the thing that we are all victim to, the thing that we are all powerless against, God, God is more powerful than. Completely swallows it up. There's a story in Luke 7, one of my favorite Jesus stories. Jesus is walking around doing what Jesus does. Wouldn't he be a cool guy to walk around with? I know you're supposed to say that because he's like Jesus. But wouldn't it still be cool just on a superficial level because he like, he keeps healing people and like feeding stuff. And you're like, I'm hungry. And he's like, here, you know, that kind of thing. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. And just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. And he he was his mother's only son. And she was a widow, which is devastating because there's no way for her to provide for herself. She's grieved at the loss of her son. She's grieved at her abject poverty that she is now about to live the rest of her days. And a large crowd, obviously, she was loved and he was loved. A large crowd from the town was, was also with her. They were grieving, they were heartbroken, they were devastated. And when the Lord saw her, he, he had compassion on her and he said, Don't cry. Don't cry. And then he came up and he touched the open coffin and the pallbearer stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. Anybody know anybody like that? The moment they wake up, they start talking and they don't stop. That's what this guy was like, all right? You ever have a kid that just never stops talking? So did this lady. The Bible says, and Jesus gave him to his mother. He gave him to his mother. And then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him went throughout all of Judea and all of the vicinity. Here's the thing that I really want to focus in the story, and you maybe didn't even catch it when I said it. This was a full-grown man, a full-grown man, his mama's only living child, He set up, he at least can talk, but he he uses the word twice, young man and man, that he's full grown. And so what does it mean that Jesus gave him to his mother? It's not like it was an infant where Jesus scoops up the child and hands him to his mother. Jesus didn't pick up this man, didn't like lift him up out of the coffin, like take him over to his mama and set him down. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus stepped into the space that death creates. Jesus gave her back, her son. That death took away. And Isaiah gives God praise and gives God glory because the death shroud is swallowed by God's grace. It reminds us of his comfort. It reminds us of the way that he walks with us through death. And one day he will defeat death. All of these aspects are just a part of the world that we live in. We may even refer to them as a part of life, we run into bullies and oppressors that hurt people. We are constantly confronted with the reality that we don't have whatever it takes to be sufficient and that we need God. We are always in need of food and community and we walk in the valley of the shadow of death. So because of all of this and because of that constant beat, that constant drum beat that gets louder and louder the longer that we live, because of that constant cadence that we need something else, we long for the day in which we no longer need and the day in which we no longer grieve. We long for that day in which there are no more bullies. No longer mean. No longer oppression. We long for that day. We long for that day. And that's why verse 9 and 10 is so glorious. You can almost hear Isaiah's voice get louder. He probably gets off key because guys sing louder and they get off key. And he says, on that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord and we have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the Lord's power will rest on this mountain. He looks forward to a day in which all of this is done away with. For those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, there's a day in which we no longer walk in the valley of the shadow of death and we simply just live in the life. We drink from the water that we will never thirst again. We eat of the bread of life. We walk in the way with the life, with the truth, that that salvation is found in God. And so this causes Isaiah to sing. It causes him to praise. God judges the wicked and he protects the poor. He provides, for his people he comforts those who are grieving and he saves those who trust him and so for this reason we live this life confidently waiting we're waiting confidently and actively here's the deal we know fully that when we look around the way it is is not the way it should be There is a day when Jesus will sit on his throne on this earth and rule his people. And that day is coming and we wait confidently for that. Knowing that in some ways this world is our home and it will be recreated in God. But the way this world is, is not our home. And so I don't make decisions in fear because I know he is on his throne. I don't run around scared of what might get me Or if my decisions or if I stand with Jesus, will others not like me? I don't care. Why? Because he sits on the mountain and this is our God. You see, he says twice, and I love this, he says it twice, this is what we have waited for. This is what we have waited for. And he doesn't say this. This is what we have waited for. Justice is finally here. This is what we are waited for. We all have enough money. This is what we have waited for. We now have food. He says, this is what we have waited for. He is our salvation. That we wait for God. Not in things. Not in horses or chariots. We put our trust in God and we wait confidently. But we do not wait passively we wait actively one of the problems would be that we read this text and we think oh well, cool yeah I agree I like this God is that way so I will sing but it's not just about singing praise giving God worth is about everything we do our entire life I do think that we should sing loudly but I think more than that we should live worthship. That's why our church on Saturday, our mission mobilizer, Ryan, who's just now taking a drink, and she probably hates that I'm pointing her out as she's taking a drink. She is leading an effort in which our church will all across the community gather food together um, for those who have it, those who don't have it, those who have a need. Why do we do that? Why does she lead that? Why are we supporting that? Why are we in many ways funding that? Do we do that because that's just what churches do? Do we do that because people are hungry? Yes, and yes. But we do that more so, why? Because we worship a God who provides. It's really cool to give people food, but it is who we are to worship him. And so we set cans out by the curb and let somebody pick them up, or we ourselves run our trucks around town picking up all of that food. Why? Because we are worshiping who God is. We wait confidently and actively last weekend in an attempt to get out of the house to do something here in conway um fridays now the kids are home which is awesome we love that and so they're home and and uh you know who needed that day off anyways and so you had to hang out with them and so we went up to the Greenbrier. we made the trek up there hanging out and um i'll tell you what i was doing i was looking for a fire pit i had driven by one day and they had those big like like uh circle sphere fire pits have y'all seen what i'm talking about they're like they're welded in there i thought there was one that was a globe and so if you set a fire in there you're going to get like a, like north america and stuff it's not like i want to set the world on fire i just thought that was cool all right so i wanted to do that we went to a place up there in Greenbrier called arkansas peddler arkansas peddler and um, they had some out there but they only had like razorbacks <laughs> just razorbacks running around the fire you know it uh, just doesn't really fit my vibe, not really what I'm trying to decorate. And so um, I thought, I'll pass. So we go inside. We start looking around at this stuff. And there's, there's a bunch of stuff in there, old stuff, like my boys say, stuff that was made in the 90s. And so uh, they're pretty impressed by that. They're like, oh, my gosh, who used to do this? And I said, I used to do that, you know. And so it was neat. There was kind of neat stuff there. Haddon at one point looks over at Leland and goes, this is called antiquing. We are antiquing. He said it like he was French and like, you know, this is culture. This is what we're doing. It's the culture of folks. One of the things that um, was really interesting were pennies. Pennies. These are interesting to me. Don't make fun of me. They're interesting to me. And I bought these three pennies up there. When I was a kid, my dad, that one that doesn't really sing a whole lot, he and I uh, did, we did penny collecting a little bit. Not like super we weren't that nerdy, but we would, you know, we would occasionally you know, like dump out all these pennies and flip them over. We were looking for things. If a penny has a certain date on it, it has a certain value to it. And there are little symbols, differences. The back may be different. It may be made of a different material. Underneath the date, there's a code. And so if it says a D underneath the date, then it was minted in, do y'all know? Denver. It was minted in Denver. If it says an S, it was minted in San Francisco. If it, if it has nothing, then it was minted in Philadelphia for pennies. It was minted in Philadelphia. And so you look for those things. You, you, you got to kind of look at them. I got these pennies. Okay, these are neat. This one is a 1942 wheat penny, meaning the back has the wheat on it. I paid a dollar for that penny. <laughs> this right here is a steel Penny. It's white or, you know, silver looking. It's 1943. It was made, uh, you know, in 1943, remember what we were doing? Um, Of course, you don't remember, you weren't there. (laughs) That was way past the 90s. Um, So 1943, still being World War II era penny. I paid, I paid $2, $2 for that penny. Now this one's cool. This penny was made in 1907. That's a long time ago. It's an Indian head penny. And so on this side, not Lincoln's head, it has an Indian and on that side, it has sort of a seal, a wreath around it and a crest. It's pretty cool. I paid $6, $6 for this penny. It has certain characteristics. It made its value more, uh, 600 times more. I mean, I don't think I can run down to Kroger and buy anything more than just a penny's worth with this penny, but it had certain characteristics. It made me wonder how much money Has somebody given, how much money has somebody paid for a penny? There's a certain penny, a 1943 copper alloy cent. They only made 40 of these by accident. And if there's only 40 of them, you know the value is going to go up. And the first one was sold in 1958 for $40,000. It's a penny, y'all. Still a penny. In 1958, 1996, Another one was sold for $82,500. More recently, a 1943 copper alloy cent was sold for $1.7 million. There's these, this is a penny, is the least amount of value we as Americans attribute to something. The very bottom, one cent. But because of certain characteristics, a little D, a certain year, a design on one side, because of certain characteristics, we give it a great amount of worth. The next time you see something, that's a cent. Take a picture. But if you see something that's a cent, or if you see a penny, I hope that your mind will go towards this idea that God has these characteristics. His judgment, His power, His authority, His provision, and most of all, His salvation. And in that, we give Him great worth because He is do it. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.